Um, just because you have a lot of money or don't have a lot of money or wealth accumulated doesn't mean anything about who you are or your accomplishments. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This episode is sponsored by Halbert Hargrove, an advisory firm that believes in the fearless pursuit of well-lived todays and tomorrows. For 85 years, their advisors have worked to help clients reach their financial goals. And as fiduciaries, they act in the best interest of their clients at all times. For help with your well-lived life, visit halberthargrove.com. Hello, I am excited to welcome my guest, Nate Astle. He is the founder of Relational Money, and he is somebody that is doing really great work in the world of breaking money silence. He happens to be a licensed marriage and family therapist. Don't let that scare you. If you haven't done therapy before, that's a good thing. He's a certified financial therapist at level one and a former member of the board of directors at the Financial Therapy Association. Nate and I first met when I did, I believe it was a webinar uh, for the organization on how to ask and get paid your worth. And so today we are doing a series uh, on a well-lived life. And I really thought it would be neat to have Nate join us and talk a little bit about his definition of a well-lived life and the work that he does in financial therapy. So welcome, Nate, to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you and talk to you. It's been maybe a little over a year since we have connected, awesome. and I know some things have changed for you. I, I believe that you were just starting your business uh, when we last spoke. Yeah, it's actually going to be my one year since I opened my business in like two weeks, so that's it's pretty exciting. Yeah. It's super exciting. As somebody who coaches entrepreneurs I, and being a 20-year entrepreneur, I know that that's a big accomplishment. And I know you're up to a lot of cool things. One of the things I didn't mention is that your work often is featured in, in different outlets. So people can see you at CNBC, USA Today, Acorn, and some of the other major outlets. So you want to look for Nate's advice because I, I know I've read some of it and it's good. So let's get into the topic of the podcast today, which is a well lived life. So I am curious, when you hear that, Nate, how would you define for yourself a well-lived life? I would say one, it doesn't have one definition. What a well-lived life is for me might not be what it is for you or the listeners, right? But for me, a well-lived life is a kind one. Um, it's one where you learn to be kind and kind is different than nice. It's not just appeasing people, right? And it's not just living your life for others, but it's learning to be generous with the love that you have 
for others, but especially, and I think this is one that people struggle with, generous with the love you have for yourself. And I think that absolutely shows up in every facet of our lives and our relationships and our workplace settings and how we behave financially, but as being generous with the love that you have. I love that because that is very different than some of the other definitions that we've had in this series. And you are so right that everybody gets to have their own definition of what a well-lived life is. And I think it's really important to think about that because you can then start to financially plan, make decisions according to what kind of your viewpoint is. But what I have noticed in your definition, as well as actually all the definitions we've had so far, is that there is not a mention of money or accumulation of wealth in your definition. Can you say a little bit as to why, Nate? When I think of money, I think of money as a, as a means to an end or it's a tool. And accumulation of wealth isn't a good or a bad goal. It is morally neutral to accumulate wealth, but it might be a byproduct of a well-lived life. Does it have to be? And like I said, it, these are these might be correlated, but they are not causal, okay? Um, just because you have a lot of money or don't have a lot of money or wealth accumulated doesn't mean anything about who you are or your accomplishments. Um, I do think that's really important because a lot of people get stuck where they're, they're, they have that money status script or belief about themselves, that their net worth is their self-worth. But it, it really doesn't have to be. It can just be a byproduct. So I want to know how, whether it's accumulating wealth or not, you know, I, I understand what you're talking about. I think that our society at least in America, is very status-driven. I know that having worked in the financial services industry, this is a generalization, but there's a lot of more money is better as opposed to having less money. And what you're saying is that's kind of separate from who you are as a person. But to go back to your original definition of being kind to yourself and others, and that's what a well-lived life is, how does money fit in there? You know, Give me an example of, of how that shows up in your life. Hmm. Oh, see, now, now I'm thinking about it. That's a good question. I mean, That's there's good. <laughs> the, the obvious is like, well, are you generous with your money? Are you, you know, do you give to causes and charities and things? And uh, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I think it's on a more personal level. I, I'm just thinking over this last, you know, this last couple of years during the pandemic, I noticed that my spending definitely went up um, during pandemic time because I was stressed out. You know, I was stressed and, and sometimes having depression symptoms. And sometimes it was just nice to get that little dopamine of, you know, getting an Amazon package or whatever it was in the mail. But kindness, I think, was learning to recognize I have a need here. I, I do. I, I do need to feel a little bit better. And it doesn't mean that my financial behavior is the most responsible or it's the thing, it's the financial behavior that I want to stick with long term. But I think learning to say, hey, there's a need here instead of saying, oh, man, I'm, I can't believe I bought another thing or I, I did what, you know, why am I not saving more or whatever it is? It's learning to not shame yourself for having needs and having wants that are fine and okay. It, and I think that's something that a lot of professionals and just day-to-day -day people struggle with is 
we assign so much of our of our value to how we behave financially, but it's not always that simple. Um, there's feelings and emotions that are valid and that we need to take care of. Even if we need to change behavior, we can still need to take care of the feelings that make us want to do X with our money. Sorry, that was right. ranty. I don't know if that's helpful, <laughs> but it is helpful because you know what, Nate? What I think is we should all start a Amazon shopping recovery program. I'm sure there already is one out there. I've certainly worked with over shoppers. You probably have as well. But I think that's something a lot of us did in the pandemic. And so what I think is interesting, I mean, it's probably good for Amazon and, and businesses like that. But I think what is interesting about your definition of a well-lived life is that it isn't whether you spent the money or not. It's, it's, it's how you are reacting to yourself, how you're being compassionate to what you need emotionally. And because so much of your work is emotionally based, a well-lived life really goes back to that emotion more than it goes back to, say, somebody that I might uh, interview who's a financial advisor, which would think, oh, a well-lived life, it, it has something to do with money. And maybe there's some other stuff thrown in. I know for some of our guests, it had to do with philanthropy or giving back or things like that. So it doesn't surprise me. Now, the other thing that I'm curious about is everybody who has been part of this series has you know, purposefully been from a different generation or a different gender, or different identity. And so for you, do you think how you are thinking and how you're defining what your well-lived life is of being kind to yourself and others, do you think that's influenced at all by your generation or your gender? I, I don't know. What do yeah, you think? Absolutely. Um, so, so I definitely want to acknowledge some, some privilege here of I, I am a white male, cisgender, you know, heterosexual, I'm married. And these different intersections of my life absolutely affect the way I think it affects um, the way I feel and my ability to ability to sit with some of these emotions and things. I'm not really worried about if I'm going to eat my next meal. Um, I'm not really worried about if my lights are going to get shut off. And I think that's a very different headspace than someone that doesn't have the same opportunities or life experiences that I have. So hundred percent, I'm 20, how old am I? I'm 29. So, oh, you're a baby, Nate. I guess, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe, you know, I I grew up in. I, I grew up when the recession was happening. Um, like I was in high school, and it definitely shaped how I thought the world was going to be. So, my money story absolutely is going to be different than a person of a different generation, gen different gender, different race. Absolutely. And that's, that's okay. It doesn't invalidate mine, but it doesn't mean that my experience is the end all be all truth of the world. And I think that's maybe something most professionals need to get over their ego a little bit. You know, it's <laughs> just because you know a thing or two doesn't mean that you know all things for everybody. Oh, I love that. That's a great quote. That should be put on like a pillow or on a refrigerator. <laughs> that's something that that's really useful. So in a minute, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, part of your day job, being a certified financial therapist. But before we do, I want to take a quick break to thank my sponsor. So we will be back in a minute with Nate talking about his well-lived life. 
balance having the life you want to enjoy today with what you're going to need in the future. At Halbert Hargrove, we've spent decades working with our clients to help them build well-lived todays and tomorrows through financial services that align to their real life goals. We believe a well-lived life is about more than money. It's about what you want for your family, the causes that you support, your lifestyle now and later. Check us out online at halberthargrove.com and schedule a call with a Halbert Hargrove advisor today. We are back with Nate Astle, founder of Relational Money, and we are talking about his definition of a well-lived life and having a conversation about how uh, it's important to really recognize where you come from in terms of how you define things and your privilege. So Nate, we were just talking about how it's really important to make sure that we appreciate that our definition of a well-lived life may be not the same as somebody else's and that everybody has a different money story and that's okay. Now, part of why you're so knowledgeable about all of this is you are a certified financial therapist. So I know what that is, but I'm not sure my audience knows what that is. So take a minute and define um, what the certification is, and then let's talk a little bit about uh, the types of folks you work with and the people that you help. Sure. So a certified financial therapist typically comes from either the financial planning background or financial services background or the mental health background. Like uh, originally I was a, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So I am trained to do therapy with uh, couples and families and individuals and on a variety of things that they're coming in for depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. So that's kind of my home discipline. What I specifically do as a financial therapist is I help people work through and move through some of the emotions that are evident in their financial behaviors. So if someone, for example, had gone through a financial trauma, um, they grew up in poverty, their parents lost their job, they lost their job, or financial infidelity, they find out that their partner has been hiding, you know, thousands of dollars in debt that they didn't know about or a secret bank account. Or it can be as simple as they just overspend and they've tried budgeting and they've tried all these things. They can't seem to stop themselves. That's typically where a financial therapist comes in and helps them identify, okay, where's this coming from? Like where are there emotions that are happening? Are there experiences that are informing your behaviors? Just in general, is there a pattern here? Um, does this happen and then you go spend? Does this happen and then you start feeling really, really bad about yourself? So financial therapy as a field is, can be really broad. How What I typically do in my day-to-day is one-on-one sessions with uh, my, my specialties with couples. That's what I like best. But it's helping people learn to think, feel, and behave differently with their money. That's great. You know, I, I always equate it to this because um, I'm a former licensed mental health counselor. I was for 15 years before I let go of my license and worked in the eating disorder field uh, when I was a counselor before I started KBK Wealth Connections and got into uh, wealth psychology. And one of the things I really equate, equate the type of work you do and some of the work that I do now, even though I'm not a certified financial therapist, uh, that it's really looking at what are the symptoms 
So with food, the symptom was under eating, overeating, over exercising, something like that. In money, it's, you know, overspending, underspending, fighting about money, hiding money, and then really looking at what's underneath it. Because it's always what's underneath the symptom that really matters. That's actually, I think, uh, the secret to recovery or to having healthier behaviors. Mm-hmm. I I would say the the one of, if not the biggest thing that was most beneficial for my personal financial behaviors was seeing my therapist and working through some of my trauma. That that was huge for me, and it. Again, I I want to acknowledge the privilege of being able to see a therapist, which not everyone has the opportunity to do. But absolutely, by, by addressing the underneath stuff, the behaviors themselves tend to dissipate or at least become less distressing, which is exciting. And I think brings new meaning to what, you know, real help looks like in in the helping professions of therapy and the helping professions of financial services. Well, and I think also, Nate, one of the things that's interesting to me is you started out in family therapy, not to say that you don't, you know, still do some of that, especially if you're working with couples, you use that system stuff. Mm -hmm. But what intrigued you enough to go, I want to become a certified financial therapist? It's not like it's a direct career path yet. Maybe (laughs) it will be in the next couple of years, but it certainly wasn't when you started, certainly wasn't when I started my career and transition into this field. Right. Yeah. Um, honestly, it, I think like most of us, we fell into it backwards. Um, I was in my master's program and I was just looking for a job. And so I got a job on campus at the financial education center that they have here at Kansas State University. And I, you know, I always liked money stuff. I, it was fun. I have an af- affinity for it, I guess, but it was in my master's program, when I was being required to do all we call it self of the therapist work, but it's basically you have to address your own stuff before you start working with clients. It was during that that I realized so much of my story revolved around different money experiences I had. My, my parents had a lot of conflict around money, um, which is very common, but it had a big impact on me as a kid. And what I remember, I just remember hating money, honestly, because it seemed to cause all these problems in my family, whether it was the lack of it or why do we work for it or how long we're working for it. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is deep. (laughs) I'm, I'm feeling very emotionally charged about this money topic. And that's, that's when I, I got lucky enough to get exposed to the financial therapy association. I, I honestly was just in the right place at the right time with I, I happen to be at a university where financial therapy is it's kind of hub is at Kansas State University. So I got to meet great professors and people that worked with me and it's been a, a whirlwind ever since. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, I can identify with your story in terms of kind of falling into it. I almost feel like this field, at least in the past, and again, I'm hoping this will change and it become more of a common thing that people see financial therapists and financial advisors refer to them. But it it often, you know, for me, it was like there was a financial crisis in our lives. I was married at married at the time. I'm still married. It sounds like I've divorced. I'm married at the time, uh, still married to my husband Brian, and we went through this financial crisis. And I found Ted Klontz and Rick Kaler's book, The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, and I happened to read it. 
And I went, oh, this is pretty deep stuff. I thought it was just money. So it kind of brings me to my next question, which is we, many of us in our society are taught by the financial services industry, I'm not saying any one particular person, but overall this idea that money is really about math and it's simple. And then both of you and I, Nate, are talking about experiences where we're like, wow, this runs pretty deep. So I'm curious if you could change one thing about how the financial services industry kind of works with people around money or sees money, what would that be? I think I would want people in the financial service industry to start treating their job as a helping profession. When I think of helping professions, I think teachers, nurses, therapists, where the outcome, the ideal outcome is human growth. I was actually on a call earlier today um, with a, a company that I'm potentially doing some consulting work with. And it was very clear that the end product is make more money. But that doesn't feel right because making more money isn't a, is morally neutral, right? It's not a good or a bad thing. But if that is the only goal, then I think we do a huge disservice to the everyday people that are trying to work with the financial service industry. If the financial service industry as a whole could become more emotion focused, um, meaning they get some basic training in empathy and validation in compassion, you know, like, and how do I ex show that in a obvious way? That would make a huge difference to, for the people on the receiving end of those services. I could not agree more. I've spent my career dedicated to that, or at least the last 15 years dedicated to that. And what I, I tend to reference it as the human side of finance, or, you know, I know when I started really doing advisor trainings, Nate, I wouldn't even use the word feelings for fear they would run for the door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not everybody, you know, was like that. There were certainly advisors all along that embraced the human side or the emotional side. Um, I think what is, I, I think you're right on. I think what is positive and maybe the silver lining of some of what has happened in the past couple of years with the pandemic and specifically in the advising industry is that people are getting that clients are emotional and they need that emotional connection. I think mm -hmm. what is challenging is still the way in which advisors get compensated tends to be about more and more and more as opposed to the out more and more money as opposed to the outcome you're talking about is has my client learned something? Is their life better? To circle back to the title of this podcast, are they living their well-lived life? Right? Right. Yeah. And absolutely. I think, you know, we could talk all day about, you know, different models of compensation. Like there's the sales model, there's the assets under management model. My personal preference is to go more along the fee-only uh, model um, where that feels a little less ethically gray, but we, we do need to acknowledge that the financial service industry wasn't built for the kind of outcomes that, of a well-lived life. It, it just wasn't. It was built on a system of, of capitalism, and it was built on the system of more money is the better thing. And that's the best thing we can do as a company is make more money. Again, I, I see that as a byproduct. You get more money by having more clients. Great. More clients that are living well-lived lives 
that can then re- make referrals or, or, you know, right. I feel like that is, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to make the ethical argument for anything other than that, honestly. Well, and I appreciate your your honest opinion. I do think that there are different models in the industry. I do think it's a big question, but the bottom line is you acknowledge, like I acknowledge, that money is an emotional business and that needs to be part of it. You know, mm-hmm. your definition of a well-lived life is really very mindful, very emotionally based. And, and our conversation today, I think, really highlights that there's this whole other aspect of finances of being kind to ourselves, compassionate to ourselves, that a byproduct of doing so might be that we have more wealth in our life. And even that you can define differently based mm-hmm. on your life experience or, or what wealth means to you. So I'm really hoping, you know, time goes so fast, Nate, but I'm really hoping today you can think about what is maybe a tip or two you want to leave our audience with um, about this topic of financial therapy or a well-lived life. Well, I, if you're okay with it, I want uh, the listeners to do a quick exercise. Absolutely. Me. Go for it. Okay. So if you're trying to change a financial behavior, okay, if you're trying to save more or spend less or, you know, whatever it is, I want you to take a couple of big breaths. I want you to ask yourself, what emotion am I feeling? Am I feeling sad, angry, scared? happy, hopeful, whatever it is. And I just want you to notice, notice the emotion. And I want you to notice where you feel in your body. So for an example, for me, when I get scared, I tend to notice my heart beats faster and my jaw gets a little tight. You know, I, you know, I I do that thing where your jaw goes back and your, your neck muscles get all tense. So I, I know this sounds weird. It was like, why am I doing this when I'm trying to change a financial behavior? What I the end goal of this is that you can identify what are the emotions I feel when I think about money, and then either with a professional or even if you just like to do it on your own in a personal journal or something, write out where did I first feel this feeling with money? When do I remember first feeling scared with money, angry with money, sad when thinking about money? It's a tiny exercise. It's essentially just a mindfulness exercise, but applied to money. And it can be very, very helpful. Again, it's this isn't therapy, but it's a start. And then the other thing, if I just a mantra or something is, I deserve peace. The When it comes to our financial well, a well-lived life, including our financials, we deserve some amount of security. And... I think the more that we can check in with our emotions, find security in other people, you know, whether it's a romantic relationship, family, friends, it can be even a, um, your financial plan or someone that feels safe, that helps you feel at peace. Find those people and it can make a world of difference in how you behave financially. I love that. I encourage everybody listening in to take some time to do that mindfulness exercise. What is often really interesting to me when we do take time to do that, and sometimes I need a reminder like you just gave us, Nate, that that's really useful to do, is that you never know what comes up and there's always something that's really uh, eye-opening when you are more mindful around money. And you are so right. Everybody deserves 
to feel peaceful uh, around their well-lived life and, and their finances. So thank you so much for being part of the Breaking Money Silence podcast today. Before I let you go, I just want you to tell us where can people find out more about the work that you're doing, both training and consulting with advisors, as well as the work you do individually. Uh, sure. Yeah. You can find me at relationalmoney.com, my, my business website. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I tweet. So that's that's a generational thing I feel pretty cool about. Um, you should. If you're, that's against trend, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm a Twitter person and I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. The... So yeah, you can find me there and um, I do offer financial therapy services to individuals as well as those, those trainings for financial advisors. But yeah, you can also just reach out to me at nate at relationalmoney.com. And yeah, I'm happy to help in whatever ways that I can. Awesome. Well, I always have a smile on my face when I'm talking to you, Nate. So thanks again for breaking money silence with me. And I'm sure we'll continue continue the conversation as your career unfolds. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. This episode is sponsored by Halbert Hargrove, an advisory firm that believes in the fearless pursuit of well-lived days and tomorrows. For 85 years, their advisors have worked to help clients reach their financial goals. And as fiduciaries, they act in the best interest of their clients at all times. For help with your well-lived life, visit halberthargrove.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.